0: Tēnā Koto, no mai, haere mai, welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. Today, a flash new ministry, but is the government actually doing enough for disabled New Zealanders? Are benefit rates as they currently stand, enough for New Zealanders with disabilities
1: to live with dignity? I think there's more work that needs to be done, certainly.
0: Then, Family First might have lost its charity status, but the organisation is feeling emboldened by changes to abortion access in America.
2: I don't think anything is off the table. Um, I totally disagree that abortion is off the table, it's absolutely on the table.
0: We'll have that interview for you shortly. But we begin this morning in Europe. And don't let perfect be the enemy of good. That's the argument from the government after it signed a new $1.8 billion trade deal with the European Union. And the deal comes at a curious geopolitical moment, as New Zealand increasingly pushes back against China. A short time ago I spoke with Trade Minister Damian O'Connor in London and I asked him what role our evolving relationship with China played in the decision to sign the EU deal.
3: Well, look, um, as you say, it's been a long time coming. 14 years we've been talking about this. Over the last four years, we've been working pretty intensely um, on concluding this arrangement. Look, China is our single biggest trading partner, really important partner, and it will be for a long time. Um, but we need, we've been working on a trade diversification strategy, trade recovery strategy post COVID. Um, so it is important that we open the doors and opportunities uh, for our exporters and importers uh, wherever we can. And this was is a really important one and we're really pleased that we've concluded.
0: Is there a greater sense of urgency behind that diversification?
3: Uh, no, I, I think we've spoken to exporters, we've been talking for a few years on the need to ensure that we've got options uh, in our markets, diversification you know, reduces the risks, we've seen geopolitical uh, tensions around the world and it's really important that we have as many places to sell our high value products into and uh, obviously Brexit cre- created a division that we had to try and work through and so we've concluded with the UK, we've cl- concluded with the EU and, and that offers options it's up to the exporters to ultimately choose where they send their products.
0: As you mentioned China is our biggest trading partner but just this week both Jacinda Ardern and NATO have specifically called out China or singled out China for criticism. The Chinese government reacted through its embassy in New Zealand and hit back at Jacinda Ardern so clearly the relationship is in a tense moment right now. What have the events of the last six months changed about our trade relationship with China?
3: Look, we have a, a mature relationship, a very significant one with China. We speak out from time to time on issues uh, that we consider a need to be addressed. Um, and, but we, we give them a warning. We, give a, we're, we have a mature relationship that says that they should uh, expect our position as an independent nation um, to be able to speak out on these issues. But we have a strong economic relationship with China that will continue into the future. Regarding other options, we'll continue as we have. Uh, through RCEP, through CPTPP, uh, through the upgrade with China itself, actually, to ensure that we have uh, robust options for exporters um, and and a wide range of opportunities for them. Um, And any, I guess, any country, any business that has, you know, reliance on one market of 30 to 40% uh, has to ensure that it it has other options should something um, interrupt or disrupt that relationship.
0: New Zealand meat and dairy exporters, I know, have expressed some disappointment in the deal, although I note that so too have European farmers, so it seems everyone's unhappy. But if the goal is to diversify, if the goal is to expand market access for agricultural exporters beyond China, this deal, the EU deal, isn't going to help much, is it?
3: Oh, yes, it will indeed. Um, we've effectively been blocked out of that market for butter, for cheese, for milk powders. Um, and so we've opened the door for those. The volumes are not what the industry would have liked, but um, mm. relative to other trading partners into the EU, these are significant and they open the door. We'll have a yearly relationships, uh, it, it, that is, that discussions um, with the EU. And I'm sure if they need more product into the market from a trusted player like us, um, then, then, you know, we can move on those. But at this stage, uh, these are very significant and, and commercially meaningful um, volumes uh, for both beef and for dairy.
0: I know that free trade negotiations with India fell over when it came to dairy access. Are you now prepared to revisit the India deal, even if meaningful changes to dairy access are off the table?
3: Um, dairy, it's a very sensitive issue in India, as it is in the EU and most of the markets that we trade into. Um, we'll continue to build relationships with India. We don't have expectations of a trade arrangement in, in the short term um, because of that dairy sensitivity, but, we'll, but I think there are opportunities in many other areas, and dairy ultimately has to be part of any trade agreement that we have with them, but quite a bit of work to do in that area.
0: Outside of those markets then, where should New Zealand be prioritising its diversification efforts?
3: Oh, look, the Gulf, the GCC um, arrangement or trade deal that was on the table in 2009, then it's been parked. I visited uh, the Gulf a couple of states there. You know, the, these are countries that need food in particular, and things like dairy and beef are, are less sensitive. Um, they certainly have a, a, a big demand for them. So we'll, we'll continue to develop relationships there, ultimately with the aim of getting a trade gr- agreement with the GCC.
0: You're in the UK at the moment. Obviously Jacinda Ardern has been meeting with her British counterpart. The working holiday visa has been extended between New Zealand and the UK and I know this was a subject during the uh, UK free trade negotiations earlier this year. So young New Zealanders can now spend up to three years living and working in the UK and the age limit has been lifted from 30 to 35. What advice have you had about the impact those changes will have on our labour shortage?
3: Um, look, in, in the short term, it may not have a direct impact, but in the long term, you know, it just builds on what is a very strong relationship between the UK and New Zealand, and the OE uh, that we've always um, uh, experienced and, and taken up, um, you know, will be further developed. Just with the security of being able to work for three years, um, and, and young people can now be up to 35 years mm-hmm. of age, which, which will, uh, you know, be very pleasing for a lot of them. But th- this is a great deal. Um, it, it probably won't be in place until 2000. 24, But um, both the UK and New Zealand have committed to get this in place as soon as possible. But will it make the brain drain worse? Oh look, I think Kiwis have always gone offshore, Um, they've picked up a lot of experience, uh, sometimes capital, um, but they've brought that passion, experience and money back to New Zealand to make our country a better place and I think that um, New Zealanders, whatever country they travel to, I think have a positive impact, give us a good reputation because they're hard-working Kiwis, they're innovative, um, but ultimately coming back home is something that we've got to work on uh, through making uh, and creating job opportunities um, for them. Um, most of us as parents uh, want to see that happen uh, to see our kids come back into the country but uh, that's for us to build up the economy through trade agreements such as the one we've just signed with the EU.
0: That is Trade Minister Damien O'Connor. After the break on Q&A the government has a new ministry for disabled people but is it symbolic or truly significant? Kia ora, welcome back. On Friday, the government launched Fai Kaha, the new ministry for disabled people. Carmel Sepuloni has been the minister responsible for establishing the ministry. Although in the recent cabinet reshuffle, she handed the portfolio off to Portal Williams. But I asked Minister Sepuloni what the new ministry represents.
1: Incredibly significant because disabled people have been calling on this to happen for a number of years. Uh, For the first time we'll have a ministry that is dedicated to disabled people. Uh, It will have the policy capacity, it will have the leadership that sits at the table with the other CEs. Not only will it be able to do its own work as a ministry, but it will uh, have a greater level of impact across government agencies, which will bring about the change that disabled have been calling for at a faster pace. What change will be brought about? Well, you could look at any area uh, where progress has been called for. Uh, More work in the employment space, uh, more progress uh, with regards to education, uh, more progress with regards to choice Mm. uh, for disabled people and what services they access and, and how that meets their needs and helps them with their well-being. You could look at any government agency and find something specific to disabled people where we are lacking in progress. If this is so important, why is a newly demoted minister in charge? Oh, look, she, the new minister, is someone that I absolutely trust. Uh, If you know Portal's background, she has been a great advocate. She led the women's refuge in West Auckland. That's where I first met her. She went to Christchurch to Mm. advocate for survivors of the Christchurch earthquake, not to become a politician, but she ended up there. And she's got a history uh, working in the disability sector. Uh, She forms great relationships, and I absolutely trust her with this portfolio. I'm also going to be her greatest ally in there, can I say.
0: Yeah. That being said, she's only got the portfolio because she's been demoted. And what does it say about the priorities that the government actually has in this space if a newly demoted minister is the first
1: minister once the ministry has been established? I don't think that we should look at the disability portfolio is a demotion. Uh, we're talking about nearly... Is Potter quarter... Williams not demoted? We're talking about nearly... Was Potter Williams not demoted? I'm talking about the disability no, I'm portfolio. talking about the minister. I... She is no longer the police minister, but taking on the disability portfolio is not a demotion. We're talking about a, about a quarter of the, the population here, mm. uh, and uh, it's a very exciting space. There's a lot to be done, and she can be trusted to form the relationships with disabled people to be able to do that work.
0: As we know at the moment, unemployment is very low in the country. That is, unless you are part of the disability, disabled community. Disabled people are far and away the biggest group of unemployed New Zealanders. Will the
1: new ministry address the dearth of employment opportunities for disabled New Zealanders? Look, I think there's work underway already in this space. Finally, we have a Disability Employment Action Plan. Uh, Over the last recent years, we've put uh, more money into expanding and supporting employment programmes for disabled people, uh, but there's certainly more to be done and we we need that type of mm. uh, emphasis and concentrated focus that we can get through a ministry for disabled people that will help us do that. Why isn't more being done already? I mean, we know that there is a
0: massive labour shortage in New Zealand right now. Disabled people are the most unemployed group of people in the country, yet... So far as I can see, there is no large-scale public campaign encouraging employers to take on disabled people for employment, for example.
1: That's certainly happening uh, through the, at the ministry level, uh, and much more work about is going on at the public on. level. Oh, even in the, the public service there's more happening there and um, we've got a toolkit in place uh, that uh, was established with the purpose of getting the public sector more actively employing disabled people. I did a survey uh, on MSD, well not me mm. specifically, but asked for this to find out a few years back how many disabled people were actually employed by the Ministry for Social Development. Interestingly, out of those that responded to the survey, which is the same as Mm. uh, what we're seeing, what we see across the motu, that doesn't mean that every government agency... Is employing disabled people to that extent and I think it's something that we need to look into more.
0: What about the private sector as well? What about a, a public information
1: campaign for example? I think the public sector needs to lead in this space uh, but there certainly is an opportunity to extend uh, the, the type of campaign that you're talking about. I think the thing is well, Jack... Why haven't you done it already though? I mean, we have started that and so that's what I was saying but I think the but thing there's, is, no, there's
0: nothing public though is it? No I'm just saying if unemployment is just over 3% I mean employers are crying out for employees everywhere. We have This massive group of underemployed people, it
1: seems like an obvious fix, and yet I've seen nothing public. There's certainly a lot happening, perhaps it is behind the scenes, and I'm not going to pretend that there's not more that can be done. But what I would say too is that for far too long... The unemployment rate, the barriers to Mm. disabled people being able to get into employment uh, has been largely underestimated and ignored. I feel like as a government, we've really picked up on it. But prior to that, the focus has always been on youth unemployment, uh, unemployment by ethnicity, specifically Mm. Māori and Pacific. uh, And now there's more of a genuine focus on disabled people and the barriers to employment and we've got to keep building momentum. What authority will the new ministry have to criticise other, other
0: government departments?
1: It's about working constructively as every government agency does. Mm. I guess the... Uh, Critique really comes from places like the uh, Disability Rights Commissioner, uh, but this is about being in there, at the table, working constructively with Mm. the other government agencies to ensure that disability and disabled people are on the agenda and also at the table. Page 25 of
0: the Labour manifesto lays out your goals for public housing. It says, Labour will continue to boost the number of accessible state houses to ensure all tenants' needs are met by requiring at least a quarter of new public housing universal design standards. You've been collecting the data for a year now, so what percentage of state houses achieve those goals?
1: I don't have that data on me, Jack. I'd be happy to go away and get it. Um, But it was the first time that we actually uh, have put in place a expectation uh, with respect to new builds Mm. for uh, those homes to be uh, accessible, and so that's something that we need to build on. Why does Kainga Order have a different target? Kainga Order has a target of 15%, whereas Labor has a target of 25%. That's, that's where we started. That doesn't mean that that's where we're going to to end. Uh, and So, You're the government, you can surely set Kainga Order's targets. My understanding is that when the um, Kainga Order Board sat down and looked at setting a target for the first time, mm. keeping in mind that there's been no expectation that there would be universal design standards Mm. taken into consideration that's where they started Uh, as I said that's not necessarily where we need to end there's more to be done
0: okay I I know I've put you on the spot with that one so I'm not gonna ask for an exact number but is it your understanding that Kainga Order is meeting its target on that front?
1: My understanding
0: for the 15% is yes. Is Kainga Order meeting Labor's target of 25% to the best of your knowledge?
1: That was a target that we put in place to achieve during the duration of this term uh, and so I'm not sure whether we've got to the 25% yet.
0: Okay, I went through the child poverty stats that were released earlier this year, pulled up one particular table of interest, 3.04, I want to make sure I get this right, of children living in material hardship
1: More than 50% come from households where someone has a disability. Mm. Why is that? First time that we've ever had data around poverty and disabled uh, people. Uh, A a number of reasons, I think... um, there's some intersectionality issues here uh, with regards to the younger demographic. Māori and Pacific, I think uh, particularly Māori, have a, uh, a younger profile with regards to disability. They're also more likely, uh, as you know, as I know, uh, to be uh, living in poverty or to be living in hardship. And so there are some intersectional issues there uh, that lead us to that unfortunate uh it's a stunning number.
0: If you, if you really burrow into the figures as well, I, I just want to present you this. Year on year, the number of children in material hardship in non-disabled households has decreased. But the number of children in material hardship who live in disabled households has gone up. So relative to the rest of the population, poverty rates are getting worse for kids who are in disabled houses compared to kids in houses where no-one has a disability. And that has happened on your watch. It's getting worse for kids in houses with disabilities.
1: I would say that it it is an issue that has been largely ignored over the years and that we're finally doing something about it, Uh, but there's certainly more to do. Even the changes that we have managed to make in the welfare uh, system, uh, whether that be increased benefits or any of the other range of changes, uh, those specifically support these whānau, Farno uh, with someone living with a disability? It's clearly not them. enough. If the, the number of kids and material hardship in disabled households is increasing. There's still more to do, Jack. And as, I, as I've always said, um, we're absolutely focused on, on doing that. Lots of calls for us to look at the uh, disability allowance mm. through the welfare system, the child disability allowance as well. Uh, there is work underway behind the scenes on that, mm. uh, but I certainly have nothing to announce today.
0: Are benefit rates at their current levels sufficient for New Zealanders with disabilities to live with dignity?
1: Oh, Look, again, more that needs to be done there, uh, but you and I know, Answer, Jack, answer that question, though. Oh, I'm not going to pretend that it's easy to live on a benefit. It's not... Um,
0: didn't I didn't ask if it was I'm, easy. I'm, is, it, is it enough Are uh, uh, benefit rates as they currently stand enough for New Zealanders with disabilities
1: to live with dignity? I think there's more work that needs to be done, certainly, and that would be my response to that. There are some families... That's a posh way of saying no. There are some families that are able to make it work because uh, perhaps they have lower housing costs, perhaps they they have different circumstances. There are certainly a number of families that that struggle on benefit, and I, ta- and I absolutely accept that.
0: But all of these issues are linked, right? So, so we know that disabled people are underemployed. That means that they're more likely to be on a benefit. You've just told me that benefits aren't necessarily enough for all disabled people to live with dignity. You look at the child poverty stats. Children who live in houses where people have a disability are more likely to be living in poverty. All of
1: these things are linked, and none of these things are materially improving on your what? There are... Much more measures in place now to make the change that we need moving forward. Than what there was when we took over, uh, and but we haven't the... seen that improvement yet. Would you? Oh, I think that? we're certainly putting the structures and the mechanisms in place to see the change. But we haven't seen the results though. We need we need to, uh, to let some of the stuff in bed, and I think we will see change, Jack. Uh, but we certainly mm. uh, we're starting from scratch, really, with regards to the infrastructure, with regards to the policies, mm. with regards to the strategic uh, advice and documents that we needed to guide us when we started, and when we've now put. Much of that in place.
0: Throughout the pandemic, the disabled community has been at greater risk. The Disability Rights Commissioner Paula T. inquiry found the government response had contributed to a greater risk for that community. What responsibility do you take for that? A
1: couple of things here. First, I'd say that our initial response to this, going hard, going fast, I really had in mind, Front and foremost, those that were vulnerable and Mm. most at risk if uh, COVID had spread widely, uh, particularly in those early stages, disabled people were front of mind with that, as were our seniors. Uh, And so our response. uh, Really did have them front of mind as we've what, gone what along. About, yeah.
0: What about when the borders closed? uh are reopened. What about when the, the mandates dropped for vaccinated workers? What about when the mask mandates dropped
2: in schools?
1: I think as we've gone along, I think that there were opportunities to be able to uh, engage with disabled people at a higher level than perhaps what we did. Um, I think that there were some areas that were just exacerbated mm. by the pandemic, but they were uh, issues that already affected disabled people before we were affected by the by COVID. What do you mean by that? Engaging at a high level? Oh, I think that there were times where um, perhaps, uh, uh, you know, officials could have engaged with disabled people um, better at different points. What does that mean? Uh, I mean, including them at the table uh, when they're having conversations around uh, certain elements. And, and so that was consulting, though, it's acting on their concerns. It's, it's acting. It? But also, I mean, like if I think about things like accessible formats mm. with regards to information for disabled people, there certainly wasn't all of government uh, accessible. Formats group to make sure that all of the information that New Zealanders were getting were getting out far and wide to include mm. uh, disabled people. But sometimes it was slow, Jack, mm. and and it would have been better if there were earlier conversations had so that that information could have got out more quickly. When
0: discussions around reducing or loosening some of those restrictions were held at Cabinet, did you advocate to keep them in place for the sake of the disabled community?
1: I've always advocated for disabled people, uh, Jack. So did you uh, oppose the reopening of the borders? Um, no, Jack, I didn't oppose the reopening of the borders. Because did you we oppose have, removing the mask mandate? Uh, because we have to keep into consideration all of the aspects in how New Zealand, are, mm. New New, New Zealand is affected. Uh, you know, there were mask issues for those that um, perhaps... Uh, didn't want the mandate to be taken Mm. away. Some did, actually. Just keep in mind, some did. Uh, Also, there were issues with the uh, exemption process at one point in time. So there were a range of things. Mm. Uh, And and I think that we would all accept that um, this was new for everyone, Mm. uh, including those that were making the decisions, including the officials. And I think there's a lot of learnings to take away from that.
0: Do disabled people have the same opportunity as other people to migrate to New Zealand?
1: There are some regulations in place uh, that means that immigration will make an assessment uh, on the health needs of those seeking to come here uh, and that can determine how successful their immigration application is. Does that mean no? That means that uh, some disabled people with uh, health needs uh, are often, uh, I guess, disadvantaged with regards to their application uh, because of the uh, determination that's made around their health needs and what that might mean for what New is, Zealand. What does that say about our values? Um, I, I think that this is, is long standing. Um, there's certainly been examples. Uh, where there have been decisions reviewed by particularly associate ministers truth, of immigration. The truth is, uh,
0: we, don't, we don't want lots of disabled people because we're, we're fearful
1: that they will cost us
0: money. That's the, that's the truth of it, isn't it?
1: I think that this is an area that um, that is worthy of, of a discussion, Jack. And I probably will stop there, otherwise I'm going to get in trouble with oh, thing. Well my... tell me, no, tell me gonna... your values are. <laughs> no, no, I, I mean, it's, say... a,
0: it's, a, it's, a, it's an awkward thing to discuss, but, I mean, it says so much about our country's values, doesn't it? I that, think... that as a disabled person who might be interested in moving to New Zealand, contributing in myriad ways to the, to the betterment of our country and our society... You have less opportunity than
1: someone who is able bodied. I do believe that disabled people are able to make a contribution to New Zealand, uh, including those that are seeking to immigrate here. Mm. Uh, I think that this is an area uh, worthy of a, a discussion, Jack.
0: Carmel Sepuloni. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can email us or find us on Twitter or Facebook. Coming up, what makes a charity a charity? We'll get Family First's reaction to losing charity status and ask what the changes to abortion access in America mean for their movement here. Of the 403 select committee submissions opposing the government's Oranga Tamariki reforms, just eight supported the changes. Just eight. Less than two per cent. And it's not like, say, end-of-life choice, where people had fundamental, philosophical, or religious objections. Many of those who work in the child protection sector opposed the reforms. Now, the government did make some changes after the select committee process, but despite broad opposition, it's pushing on with the reforms. And I asked Carmel Sipoloni why?
1: I think that um, I was quite happy with what came back from the select committee's changes. I think that the submissions that were made led to uh, some important changes. I I believe what is laid out now will actually ensure that we've got a a system in place Mm. that Provides assurance to our children in care uh, that someone is checking that system to ensure mm. that it works for them. The I think that, it strengthens it. Well, almost, Jack. almost no one else does.
0: I mean, Greens MP Jan Logie said in her report with the Select Committee recommendations, this quote. It's rare to consider a bill that has so little community support and it's particularly disturbing to see so much opposition to a proposal that purports to increase the monitoring of and advocacy for the well-being of children in care. Why would the social sector, why would all of these rights-based organisations and care-experienced young people oppose your reforms if it
1: truly does improve the system? Jack, honestly, some of the conversations that I've had and some of the information I've seen out there is actually in contrast to where we've landed. Uh, And so I've said to people that have specific areas that they're Mm -hmm. concerned about, to get in touch with me so that we can actually ascertain whether or not those concerns are valid or whether or not actually they have been addressed in the recent changes, Jack. And I'm happy to talk about the specific changes. talk. we'll talk about those
0: changes in a second. ACT, National, The Greens, Te party Māori all oppose the bill. Even if you think... Your political opponents and all of the advocates who work in the space who oppose the changes, even if you think they 're wrong, do you have the humility to accept there is a possibility
1: that these changes could make the system worse no they 're not going to make the system worse at all jack there 's no possibility no. Uh, we, there are, you know I, I just want to challenge some of the assertions that have been made the, the assertion that we 're taking monitoring off the Children's Commission, actually they haven't been able to do that and they haven't been doing that for quite some time. The idea that we're taking complaints off Mm. the Children's Commission, the Ombudsman has been doing those. In fact, the Children's Commission have been sending them to the Ombudsman. What has been uh, not good is that there's been a lack of clarity with regards to who does what uh, and there hasn't necessarily... Um, being the accessibility for the children who want to seek out how they get support. Okay, and so, so those just those expli- explain to, to me how, okay, on. explain to me then, give me, the, give me the 30 second version, how does it work? It works by, you have a Children's Commission who still retains a Children's commission Commissioner but is supported by a board which sees representation of Māori, people in care or people who have care experience mm. as well as disabled people. You have the Ombudsman who, who has a more visible, accessible complaints process for children mm. uh, that is able to work at a faster pace than they previously have been able to and you have an independent children's monitor who is monitoring how the system works who then is able to provide that uh, information to not just the government but also to the advocate which is the children's commissioner so that we both have um, timely uh, and extensive information on what is happening in the system and monitoring the system so so the government can make policy decisions based on that advice and the children's commissioner can advocate with that advice. Would a child understand that Oh, at the moment this is why there has to be a framework in place with regards to but I mean the, the, you
0: were the one just before before I asked you that question you said you wanted to have a thing which uh, a system whereby children who were in care care experienced kids in or could understand the system and could navigate it for their own Jack, purposes they
1: couldn't before complaints complaints were going to the children's commissioner and then being sent on to the ombudsman mm. anyway and so there was a lack of clarity previously and we're certainly looking to tidy that up
0: you were talking about the difference between advocacy and monitoring which i know is one of the causes of division over the changes you're proposing so the independent children's monitor will have powers of entry so that it can carry out monitoring duties for children who are in care under the proposals though the monitor has to notify the residences in writing before they go and make one of those visits and they cannot visit the residence if the residence declines by writing for reasons like a gastro outbreak or for potential emotional distress. Those hardly seem like very strong powers for a monitor that's supposed to be getting a realistic picture of what's mm. happening in those facilities.
1: It's a bit of a red herring jack because there hasn't really been more extensive powers previously. Uh, and. Let's be fair, if there is something that's going on in a residence where it is of that urgent a nature, then actually you would expect that the police or another service could be called in uh, to go more urgently. Well, I'm going to read to you a quote from the Royal
0: Commission. This is just evidence from a person who was giving evidence the other day who said that when he was in care he was treated like a glorified slave He was not allowed inside the house except to cook or do chores, slept in a storage shed which only had room for a bed, Visits by social welfare were, quote, orchestrated with the family putting on a banquet and no opportunity for him to speak to social workers alone. Why would that situation be any different to an independent children's monitor that has to notify a facility
1: by writing before they turn up? There's the monitoring with regards to what you said. Uh, Also, there is the complaints process uh, Mm. with respect to if something like that is happening, they can complain and something can be done about it. Except we just pointed out that children don't know how to operate the system. No, they haven't known how to operate the system. So part of what... Uh, we're even legislating Mm. for, and we've put in the legislation, is that work has to go on uh, with regards to making it more accessible to children and making it clear uh, for, for them so that they know how to access the support that they need.
0: The Royal Commission is ongoing, however. It finishes, I think, in June of next year. Why not wait until the end of the Royal Commission before going
1: ahead with these reforms when so many people in the sector are saying, just hold on? Because we need to act with urgency, Jack, The BD report was really clear. We needed to get a monitoring mechanism in place as quickly as possible. What we have done is put into the legislation that it must be reviewed within five years. That doesn't mean you have to wait the five years, uh, but we've put it in place Mm. with that report in mind. If there's anything that comes out of that report uh, that uh, indicates something needs to change with regards to the system that we've set up, then there is an opportunity to do that that is Carmel Sipoloni.
0: Stay with us Q&A is back after the break. Gaudeti, we welcome back. The reforms which saw the fire service transform into Fire and Emergency in 2017 were supposed to be about strengthening the entity for years to come. But now, the cost of that transformation may be fueling what's being described as a fire crisis. Fens and the Professional Firefighters Union have now called in a third-party mediator to help with their industrial dispute. Connor Sterling, with this.
4: They come whenever we call. But lately, the strain of being our guardian angels has forced professional firefighters to strike. Fire and emergency now fighting fires of their own.
2: We feel like, as a union, we've got our back against the wall and we need to do something to actually be listened to by FENS management.
4: Bargaining between the nearly 2,000-strong union and FENS has been going on a year now. Issues go beyond individual pay and frequent overtime, including substandard equipment and a lack of training and support. The union also wants a recognition of the cancer risk its members face on the job. But the Professional Firefighters Union says the as-yet single day of mediation with FENS bombed, with the employer unwilling to move on issues other than pay.
5: We wanted to keep the conversation
4: going though, so we tried to initiate conversation on some of the other really important issues, including staffing, the staffing levels. Um, uh, they weren't prepared to do that at this point. Union members had approved more disruptive action should no progress be made, and it prompted the Internal Affairs Minister into action.
5: I have had conversations with the FENS management and the FENS board and it's about bringing them back to the table together. If I can help with that, then I will help with that.
4: And it may have done the trick. The union and FENS this week agreeing to get in a third-party mediator to get the two groups back round the table. But what's driving the union's claims in the first place? They come off the back of not only the recent culture reckoning but the 2017 amalgamation... Then Internal Affairs Minister Peter Dunn led the reforms which saw more than 40 separate fire services pulled together. Integration of the respective agencies was said to take four years and billed as the biggest change to the sector since the devastating Ballantyne's fire of 1947.
5: It was a necessary amalgamation that had to happen. We needed a modern fire uh, service to serve this country. But that didn't make it easy.
4: The minister admits that reform has partly fuelled union concerns.
5: It was a very complicated amalgamation. And even at the time, I know that the then government had underplayed just how big this was going to be. But that doesn't mean to say that this is impossible.
4: Implementation costs aren't the only thing inflaming those on the ground.
5: There's about uh, 40 to 50 less career firefighters available
4: today than there was in 2016, yet there's um, a comparison with the 2016 and 2021 annual reports, there's 300
3: more support corporate management staff.
5: So I've actually asked for some more advice around that and that's one of the parts of the conversations that I've had with the FENS governance and their management level and I'm waiting for that to come back through to me.
4: Benz's own statement of intent talks about needing to offer an environment and opportunities where their people feel safe and are well equipped for their roles. This week's agreement to get back round the table, perhaps the path to achieving that and finally solving the standoff.
0: Connor Sterling with that report. After the break on Q and A, is Family First being unfairly treated for charity status? The group feels energised by the Roe v. Wade abortion rights decision in America. So, could abortion access here actually change? The Supreme Court has ruled that Family First does not qualify for charitable status. After a legal fight which lasted almost a decade, the court ruled that expressing a viewpoint was not an automatic disqualifier, but that charities must genuinely seek to educate rather than to solely advocate for a political position. I sat down with Family First Chief Executive Bob McCoskery and asked him for his reaction to the ruling.
2: Well, we obviously disagreed with it uh, vehemently. We think they've got it wrong. Uh, And I think most people that have contacted us about it are concerned about it, and simply they're questioning the consistency, because what the, what the court said was that our, our education attempts had veered into um, advocacy, and therefore we were pushing a view, and they didn't think a charity should do that. But my, my question back to them, and to, to people who perhaps are applauding the decision, is well, uh, Greenpeace presented a 100,000 petition on Thursday at Parliament. That's advocacy, they're pushing a view. Uh, The Helen Clark Foundation and the Drug Foundation were promoting legalisation of cannabis Mm. while we were opposing it. They were pushing a view as well. So I think our concern is that it's not fair Uh, And simply we need to be consistent about whether charities can do political advocacy.
0: Mm. The question isn't necessarily whether they can do advocacy, it's what that advocacy is informed by, isn't it? And I know the Supreme Court said that family first advocacy is not fair, balanced respectful now I'm gonna ask you about those education points in a couple of minutes but is there is there any way for you to regain your charitable status
2: well can I just answer that that claim that was made by one judge of five four judges did not make that statement and we reject that because we believe that in the debate we have been respectful people will disagree with what Mm. we say but we, you know, this is part of uh, public debate. You, you often don't like people's views, but that's if if our if our if our argument is so weak right. that we can't have the dissent, then we probably need to go away and work on our argument again, don't right. we? Because we just we need to be able to have that melding of ideas. And look, Sue Barker, the charity's law mm. uh, expert, she said that we've been penalised not for breaking the law. Mm. We've been penalised for entering the democratic process. Now, most people see that as unfair.
0: Yeah, well, we've got you here so that you Mm. can express your views, and and, and we're interested in hearing those arguments. So, again, is there any way for you to regain that charitable status?
2: No, that that was the end of the line in terms of court processes. Ten years, it's cost us about three-quarters of a million dollars, um, because we've been fighting this on the basis that the danger is that when the court determines what can Mm. and can't be said by charities, we're in a dangerous place.
0: Okay. now you talked about Greenpeace and those other organisations the Helen Clark Foundation and the Drug Foundation, yeah. by, by matter of comparison. And, and of course, can,
2: look, can I clarify that we're not saying that they should be deregistered. I actually think they should be registered. Right. I think we, we just want a level playing field. OK,
0: and, and let's talk about that, because there, there is an interesting distinction when it comes to that point around education. Mm. And the Supreme Court said mm. that you can be a charity mm. if you show that you are providing some sort of educational mm. value. So when compared to Greenpeace, who went through a similar process to have their charitable status affirmed, The Supreme Court found that Greenpeace had, quote, independent scientific research, objective, neutral and balanced, based on industry standard modelling techniques, and was peer-reviewed by an appropriately qualified independent person. Thus, the means by which education was said to be advanced was demonstrably unbiased and neutral, and we do not consider this can be said of much of the material on which Family First relies in this case. Mm -hmm. And I've been through your website. I've been through the bits that say research... And it's clear that there isn't much peer-reviewed, robust academic literature or research that you have been publishing. So there is quite a clear distinction with Family First and Greenpeace on that argument.
2: Well, uh, we actually put some evidence up, and it was put up by Professor Paul Moon from AUT, about the whole peer-review process, because what we actually found was that many charities publish research, they basically present their ideas, they Mm -hmm. present the research that backs up that view, uh, and and not of not all of it is peer reviewed. But see, I found that comment but, but by the Greenpeace was though. That's the argument though. that, that well, Green, Greenpeace does have. I
0: mean, this is what the Supreme Court's saying, right? If they, you can persuade
2: me that Greenpeace isn't pushing a view, then that, I, that's I, not <laughs> the argument.
0: Though, no. I I think we all agree that Greenpeace <laughs> yeah. is advocating. But the point is whether or not Greenpeace is relying on robust, independently reviewed research. And the court found that Greenpeace is, but that Family First isn't. And, and from having been on your website, I can't yeah. see any evidence that w- would argue that.
2: No, well that's a, I mean, that's up for debate whether their research stands up to scrutiny. Mm. For Greenpeace, in, in our case, I found it a slight uh, because our reports had been written by people such as Professor Rex Ardar at Otago University. Mm. It had been written by uh, Australian bioethicist Dr Gregory Pike, by a UK psychologist expert, Arik Sigmund around screen time and around uh, child care, and even Are Lindsay these peer Mitchell, reviewed? who's a yes, they were reviewed, but um, it's how reviewed. you define peer review. Mm. Because the thing is, we had uh, experts in the field who reviewed the papers, but b- peer review is when you publish them in a journal. Mm. Uh, and so we, we had them checked. But I tell you what, Jack, nobody has actually challenged the factual basis of what we're saying. They've simply challenged the view that comes from those reports. Right.
0: Well, I'm just going from the Supreme Court argument, mm. and one yeah. of them is that to be a charity, you have yeah. to you have to have this educational standard, yeah. and, and that's the distinction that's been found. And I'm just mm. saying, from having been on your website, yeah. a lot of the stuff under the research Folder on your website is mm. like you making videos and that sort of thing, yeah. as opposed to peer reviewed, robust, peer reviewed, industry standard research. The other point you
2: that, might not have looked at the right um, well, I looked at uh, research.
3: research. <laughs> I looked at research, so I don't know where else to look. But, but um, the, but, but here, the, let me, let me yeah. ask the
0: second point because the, the second point that was argued in the Supreme Court mm. was about the benefit to the community. Yes, and I know you will have seen on page 49 of the Supreme Court's decision they said family first purposes are themselves. DISCRIMINATORY, AND I KNOW THAT THAT IS AN INFLAMMATORY TERM, SO Mm. I WANTED TO THROW IT OVER TO YOU. HOW WOULD YOU DEFINE DISCRIMINATION?
2: WELL, DISCRIMINATION, I MEAN, THEY SAID WE'RE DISCRIMINATORY BECAUSE WE BELIEVE MARRIAGE IS ONE MAN, ONE WOMAN. Mm. NOW, DURING THE MARRIAGE DEBATE IN 2012, 2013, THE POLITICIANS SAID, AND I'VE ACTUALLY JUST PUBLISHED A VIDEO Mm. LAST NIGHT SAYING THAT THE the POLITICIANS PROMISED THAT A VIEW OF MARRIAGE AS ONE MAN, ONE WOMAN WOULD NOT BE TREATED AS DISCRIMINATORY. They promised us that. So they haven't delivered on that promise. Now, the, the, the problem in the so, judgment... So hang on. Yeah. How do you define discrimination? Well, I, the danger is that discrimination... I mean, it's a million-dollar question. What it's is it, discrimination? So,
0: so what, what's what do you think?
2: Discrimination? I think it's when you disagree with someone's opinion. And, and so you, you prefer another one. So you discriminate one against the other. When I go into a supermarket, if I choose Pepsi or Coke, I've discriminated against one or the other. So, so do you accept then that
0: on that issue of marriage yeah. that the Supreme Court raised, yep. your position distinguishes people and assigns different rights to people depending on their sexual preference?
2: No, we've always argued that marriage has always been defined through culture, through history, through millennia, and by much of the world still, as one man, one woman, and right, we've said that, that if, that if other people... Though, hang on, it? No, yeah, it does. But if people want to have their own mm. relationships in different forms, mm. that's fine. Use another name.
0: Okay, so, so do same-sex couples, under your definition of marriage, have the same rights as... Uh, a man and a woman getting
2: married. well. They have under the law. We're simply saying that we're coming from the perspective of that marriage position. is one yeah. man, one woman. So, so, so we've, we've, we've family first has never backed away from the fact that we back a Judeo-Christian value, mm. and that is that marriage has always been defined as one man, one woman. There mm. are other forms of relationships use another name, that was our argument during the marriage debate. It was never a right. personal attack, it was simply saying there is a definition that that we want to stick to. So,
0: so if the Supreme Court is concerned about defining discrimination mm. and whether or not your organisation benefits the community or whether or not by discriminating your organisation doesn't necessarily benefit the community, mm. might they not focus on that distinction? Might they not focus on the fact that under your definition same-sex couples don't have the exact same rights as a man and a woman who want to be married?
2: Well... uh... Uh, see, I'm not quite sure what the, the 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 point is, because you are always going to have different views of relationships that work. Our argument has been... I, I'm saying it, it's, your, yours is a, absolutely
0: yeah. a, an argument that is held by many people around the world, a, mm. and, and no doubt a large portion of New Zealanders as well, if not mm. the majority. All I'm saying is that under the legal definition, it could be considered discriminatory, and thus that second argument yeah. before the Supreme Court doesn't stand up.
2: Yeah, it could, but but the problem with the uh, the judgment was that they said that uh, your view, our view on marriage and family, wasn't acceptable, was discriminatory, even though the politicians promised us that mm. actually it wouldn't be deemed to be discriminatory. You should
0: never trust a politician. That's right.
2: You shouldn't. <laughs> but the, but the other problem is that the, the the court said that if we had been uh, focused on environmentalism mm. or human rights, as per the Greenpeace case we would have qualified. So so who
0: does does an argument hmm. for environmentalism discriminate against?
2: Well, you discriminate against the forms of environment you want, and I tell you what, Greenpeace. If you, if you're some arguing, people no, if you're some people love Greenpeace a, because they agree with the environmental approach, and other people don't like Greenpeace because they don't, mm. they they disagree with the economic harm that the environmentalism right. policies are doing. Okay. So that's discrimination as well. Greenpeace are discriminating because they're saying we want to go down one path, mm. we want to get rid of utes and gas guzzlers. Mm. So that's discrimination as well. Okay. If that's discrimination,
0: though, we can go back to the first argument in the yeah. case of Greenpeace and say, well, Green pieces, in the eyes of the Supreme Court, the educational uh, opportunities that they offer stand up in a way that your organisation... No, doesn't. no. These are, these are the views of the Supreme
2: Court. No, no yeah, there's a, there's yeah a and Supreme the Court. Supreme Court holds that the religion of environmentalism is okay, yeah but, okay. but values around family and marriage are not okay, and that's what I warn is, is the disturbing part of the judgment. But we won't back off from those views. Yeah, did you get a lot of uh, donations after the decision? They piled, and um, and I think a lot of... Well, some people said that uh, when they donated to us, it was giving the two fingers to the government. Mm. For deregistering us,
0: I, I, I want to highlight a comment that was made on Twitter by Dewey Deboer, who's a uh, was a new conservative activist uh, candidate a, and is a, a, a right long, right yeah I know right wing <laughs> blogger. I just I'm interested <laughs> in your thoughts on it. Yeah. Um, Dewey said that uh, the charity decision um, meant a good day for Christian nationalism, untethered from legal restraints on political activity. The real work can begin. And I wondered mm. if that if that reflects your view.
2: No, I'm not quite sure what he means by that, um, because for Family First, even though we're underpinned by a Judeo-Christian value, I've I've worked in tandem Mm -hmm. with uh, other faiths, Muslim faiths during the uh, cannabis referendum, during the euthanasia referendum, during the abortion debate. We've we've, uh, held hands Mm. with other faiths and non-faiths as well. Does it free you up though? Uh, Not being uh, registered. Absolutely, because there was always this fine line Mm. about whether you were doing too much political advocacy. And so I think, you know, we were worried that we were overstepping that mark. But then again, we were looking at other organisations, other charities like SAFE and like Amnesty International. And there's a whole lot of them who I think should be registered because Mm. I think if you're non profit, you represent a constituency of the population, and and you're entering the public debate, let's have those social debates. Mm. From one
0: Supreme Court decision to another, what did you make of the decision to overturn Roe v Wade? Well,
2: the, the first funny thing is that it was a really interesting couple of days because for three days the Supreme Court was illegitimate, completely immoral, terrible decision out of the US Supreme Court, and then suddenly a decision out of the New Zealand Supreme Court was the best decision, what a great court. So I, I did find that slightly amusing. It, uh, what it comes down to is it depends whether you agree with the decision or not. Do you, do you think... But yeah. should Roe v Wade be repealed? Absolutely. No, That's, no, but wait, mm. and what did you make of the decision to repeal Roe v Wade? Oh, a fantastic decision. Yeah. Anybody who thinks that the unborn child has a right to life and that their bodily autonomy should be recognised. I mean, that was a law made 50 years ago. It's an Mm. archaic law, it had to be booted out because it fails to understand what we've learnt through the fetal development of the child. Uh, And it's a great decision. Do you accept that a majority of New Zealanders support legalised abortion? Uh, In principle, they support abortion but they don't support as far as it went. And actually, that's what the Gallup polls show in the US as well, is that when you look at first, second, third Mm. trimester abortions, the support goes right down to 13% Mm. for third trimester, only 28% for second trimester. Now, in New Zealand's law, you can have it up to 40 weeks. Mm. Between 20 and 40, you need the nod of the two abortion doctors.
0: That's right. What did you make of the political response, and in particular, the leader of the National Party?
2: Well, I, I don't think anything is off the table. Um, I totally disagree that abortion is off the table. It's absolutely on the table for the pro-life movement. It's been a huge um, encouragement because the pro-life movement in America has fought for 50 years to overturn that horrendous law, uh, court case. And um, New Zealanders, for uh, for the New Zealand pro-life movement, Um, yeah, we're certainly not giving up. I mean, sure, the law changed two years ago, but in effect, we've had abortion on demand uh, right since 1977. Uh, when the original act came in, yeah. so I'm,
0: I mean, I'm sure that your opponents would disagree with that characterisation. What did you make? Well, what's of the characterisation the, of, that we have abortion on demand in New Zealand? I, well, we I do. Think we
2: always have had abortion on demand.
0: I, 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 what did you make of Simon O'Connor's tweet and his
2: decision to remove it? Oh, I totally agreed with uh, the post. Basically, it was a great post. day. Yeah. Mm. Um, but that's probably why I'm not a politician.
0: Well, I'm interested in that. How do do you turn Roe v Wade into political political momentum for your movement?
2: Well, I think it's like any social debate. I mean, Mm. uh, for example, let's take the cannabis referendum. Mm. Uh, We won that debate. We stopped the legalisation of cannabis, and and we think that's a great decision. Does that mean that the pro-legalisation camp has packed up and said oh well that's it it's mm. off the agenda we're not going to do anymore of course not they're going to continue and we're going to have to continue to put up the mm. argument um and the interesting thing is that unfortunately now we've been deregistered you know you know that kind of sends the message oh it's okay to promote legalisation but not oppose it. That, right. That's a dangerous message out of the uh, Supreme Court is that certain views are unacceptable and I think as the country's considering no, hate speech laws... They, they were
0: really... That's, that's, that's not a fair characterization. No, it and is the because Court, no, they the said Court
2: environmentalism was... and human rights is OK but marriage and family is not. That's, that's what not, the, the decision says. They said
0: you have every right to hold your views and to express your views. You just can't do them through the vehicle of a charity. That's what the Supreme Court said, which is You can express them, yeah,
2: but why are they treating certain groups differently to other charitable groups because who have the same function, and same advocacy.
0: Very simply, because you don't meet the standards when it comes to education and benefit to the community. I, I, That's the decision <laughs> of the Supreme Court. Hey, let me ask so you so promoting family
2: about, is not beneficial to the community?
0: Well, well, as I say, the Supreme Court says that you are promoting a discriminatory view. That is the that is the view of the court. But see, we've Can't also last talked couple about of questions. So Let me ask you about the Supreme Court of the US. Obviously, yeah. that is a highly politicised... Um, body at the moment. Do you think that's good for America, having, having politically appointed justices deciding issues of this nature?
2: You could possibly put that argument up about the New Zealand Supreme Court. Are they political appointments?
0: Do you, do you think that the US Supreme Court is perhaps more tribal than, than I, New uh, look,
2: I think Super without cool. doubt the US is more tribal. Um, you know, you're either mm. uh, Republican or Democrat. Whereas in New Zealand, the mixed MMP has meant that we have a number of camps. Yeah. I think even in Australia you've got a number of camps. The UK... A little bit tribal as well. I, yeah. think. So it, I think it depends on the voting system. So, so that's, that's my final
0: question then. Mm. I wonder if mm. a majority of New Zealanders support the legalisation of abortion, and I accept your argument that some New Zealanders... Depends perhaps, what type. Yeah, but at yeah. the moment, that they, the majority of New Zealanders support the legalisation of, of abortion, including even by your polls. Uh, is it in the interest of societal cohesion to have a policy of this nature that is not in the interests of the majority?
2: Well, I think if you said to any charity, if you're not in the majority, you better pack up your tent, uh, they would say, oh, forget it. We're gonna keep working and we're gonna persuade people. And that's, And so we will persuade people that actually we should be pro-life, we should give rights to the unborn child. I'd like to create a culture where we welcome every child and we support every parent. That's our aim. We believe that's a human right. But for some reason, the Supreme Court doesn't agree with our view. Thank you very much for your time. Good to be here.
0: That is Family First CEO Bob McCoskree. Now, quick note, Bob contacted us to challenge the quality of Greenpeace's independent research after the interview compared to Family Firsts. He pointed to an earlier judgment by the Charities Board which criticised some of Greenpeace's research and said they both have the same quantity of court-recognised, peer-reviewed research. But as I said in the interview, the Supreme Court ruling this week, whether you agree with it or not, was unequivocal in comparing the organisations. It said the material family first presented did not meet the same standard as Greenpeace in advancing education. Kua matu, that is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thanks for watching. And nā mihi ki a koutou inga Thanks for your feedback. Hey Tia wiki. We'll see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.